We are going to be reading out of Genesis chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, um, Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to have Michelle come and read for us. Genesis chapter 12. starting in verses 10, or verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich with livestock and silver and gold. In high school, we were required to take a shop class or a blow-off class for some of us. Only for some of us. I'm putting myself out there. Uh, I remember most people in my, in my shop class goofed off. Uh, they did not pay attention. They were usually very frustrating to the teacher. And in, in my shop class, my teacher was my basketball coach. So that probably wasn't the best idea uh, for me. But when it came time to step into the shop, uh, things needed to change. We had particular projects that if we goofed off, um, didn't pay attention, or misunderstood what the teacher had said, it would not go well for you. Our teacher would promise that if you followed the safety protocol and exact directions, trusting his oversight, you wouldn't endanger your life. Ultimately, it would go well for you. That's a tall order with machinery and woodworking and teenagers. Um, but he told us the projects that we would be doing would be hard. But if we trusted him and his word, they would be worth it. You just had to understand clearly what he had said. So for me, I'd grown up seemingly, you could say, sojourned around a shop. I'd grown up around machinery. I'd grown up around uh, tow trucks and woodworking and all that stuff. And so I, I never really understood because I never really spent time there. I never really asked my dad or my grandfather or my uncle any questions about how to navigate the shop. But I still stepped into this 
particular class thinking I knew exactly what I needed to do. It was honestly still a foreign place to me, but in my mind, I had said, I know what has to be done. I assumed that I could do it by myself and that it would go well for me in this shop class. So I could sojourn this shop class in my own ideas. And in reality, uh, what I really needed to do was I needed to listen to the teacher and I needed to understand his words. I needed to hear his promise clearly about how to navigate this shop class. Because misunderstanding the protocol or process or purposes in shop put my life at risk. I could lose a finger, whatever. So Abram, at this point in the story, is in the shop, Egypt. Famine and sojourning the land are complicating his realities. A promise has been given to him that God said, I will bless you. God said, I will give you a place. God said, I will. But familiar thoughts and patterns and survival in Egypt is all that Abram can think of. And for good reason. He wants it to go well for himself. He wants it to go well for his family. He wants to stay alive. He wants to ensure God's promise to him. He wants to. This famine and sojourning in Egypt has complicated his newly minted relationship with this God and this God's promise. So the question is, does Abraham understand the promise that God just made for him as he sojourns during this famine in a foreign land, trying to protect himself? So when you step into the shop class of life, do you understand what God has promised you? What provision and protection he has for you? God is the proverbial shop teacher who has given us the promise. But oftentimes, we can misunderstand the promise of God and that is set to provide and protect us as we navigate the famines, hard processes, complex decisions, poor decisions, our sin, mistakes, betrayal, and seemingly life-threatening realities of life. We too can misunderstand the promise that God has given us. So we weren't made for this sort of misunderstanding or what you could say is spiritual amnesia. We were made for clarity of God's promise, security in God's words, and to be surrounded by God's presence. We were not made to do this life solo or on our own terms. We were made for God. So as we dive into this particular story, uh, we are given a new opportunity 
to experience God afresh. The Bible is so aware of our need. It gives us stories like this. Have you ever thought about that for a second? The Bible was written by humans to speak about God. It is divinely inspired because it is, it is God's word, but penned by humans. The Bible is so aware of our need. It is on every single page. And for us, stories like this can renew our hope. And for those of us who doubt God and misunderstand his promise, this story gives us an opportunity to see God clearly, to hear his word clearly, to receive his promise clearly. So together today, uh, we get to ask this question as we, go around, as we go through this text. What does misunderstanding God's promise look like? What does misunderstanding God's promise look like? So look with me now at Genesis 12, verses 10 through 13. So look at scene one, verses 10 through 13. When we read these opening verses in this narrative, it tells us about ourselves. In verse 10, we immediately see challenging circumstances, a famine. Abram had just been given the promise of blessing from God that he would have a place in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through nine. This place was the land in Canaan. And immediately as he is going into this land that was promised to him, he is met with a famine, which for the land of Canaan was actually a common occurrence. The land would hit seasons of drought, which in turn created lack or it created these famines. And these circumstances are out of Abraham's control, but they aren't out of God's. The promise of God's blessing does not guarantee the, pro the process of ease. He told Abraham to go into the land, but he didn't tell him that it was just going to be easy. He said, I will bless you. I will give you a land. Yeah, that land will be flowing with milk and honey, but at this moment it is not. It is in a famine, as the text tells us. So Abraham faced a famine in the land. And these circumstances, as we see in verse 10, had Abram go down to Egypt. Not only did Abram have one challenging circumstance, he now traveled even further into a foreign land, Egypt. A land he was not intending to stay in, as the text said, he sojourned. So we've got a famine and a foreign context at play here for Abram. So what is Abram doing here? What is he attempting to do? He's trying to find hope in what is foreign. So Egypt would have been familiar to the hearers of this text. They knew the significance of this place and they knew they would have lived through the exodus so think about that. When, when this is being read to the original audience, they would have lived through the Exodus. They would have known that story. They would recall the hopelessness found in Egypt. Intense circumstances can do that to us, right? They can make us look for hope in a foreign thing, in something that's not are not normal, not usual. We, we've all been there. We say, we've been down this road before. 
let's try another one. Or I just need relief from this pain. I'll try this drink or this drug or this TV show or anything to give me hope. I'll try something foreign. I'll try something different. So as Abraham goes down into Egypt, he's going into a foreign, a foreign place to find hope. And as the circumstances mount and hope of provision drives Abraham south into Egypt, his eyes are directed to his wife. The text says that she's beautiful. And he's thinking, oh no, it's a foreign place. They will notice you. And when they notice you, I'll be in trouble. Not you'll need protection, I'll be in trouble. He's got this heightened sense of what would happen to him. The text says, if they see that you're beautiful, they will take you and they will, what? Kill me. So he's got this heightened sense of everything around him at this moment. He's looking at his wife. He's thinking about his family. He's in a foreign context. And nothing actually around him is really in his control. His natural instincts, we all felt this, when, we're, when things are out of our control, our natural instincts kick in. And what happens here? Abraham begins to focus on the external. He knows the promise of God has to come through him. So he pines for control. He reaches for control and he goes to grab what he can grab. You've been there, right? You've tried to grab what you could grab. You've tried to control what you can control. You've ran the inventory in circumstances that feel out of your control. Suffering will actually do that to us on a pretty extreme level. It'll force us to have a heightened awareness of everything that's around us and all the things that we cannot control. Our fight or flight kind of begins to kick in here. Fear floods our focus and narrows it on the external. So as the fear floods his focus, Abram's focus on the external, Abraham's instincts kick in. He's at an unknown place. He's hungry. He's tired. His wife is beautiful in this foreign context. He wants everyone to be safe. Think about what the text says. He says, say you're my sister, so they won't kill me and it'll go well for you. <laughs> and it'll go well for me. He's trying to protect his people. He says to Sarah, I say, you're my sister. It'll go well for me that way. His flight is in full force at this moment. This is the wisdom he thinks that will save them, that will protect them. He goes, I'll tell a half-truth. Because if you don't know this about it, Sarai was actually Abram's half-sister. So he's saying, I'm not necessarily lying. I'm going to tell a half-truth. And this will go well for me if you say you're my sister. And if I'm alive, think about this for a second. Reason with Abram. If I'm alive, if he's alive, the promise of God stays alive. He's saying, if I'm alive, the promise of God stays alive. And then 
if the promise of God stays alive, you can stay alive too if I lie here. It'll be harmless. What is Abram doing here? He's finding solace in his plans. He's reasoning with himself and finding comfort in the fact that he's came up with these plans. So can you hear yourself reasoning through your own issues here? Maybe at work, maybe with your spouse, your kids, maybe reasoning with that secret sin that's kept you in shame, shackled to guilt. So what does misunderstanding God's promise look like here? Well, the answer, it looks like finding safety in yourself. It looks like finding safety in yourself. So a few years ago, I was in a foreign country held in a hostage-ish situation. It was dark. It was the middle of the night. Gunfire and demands were being made. And I was a part of a group of college students. We were always told not to wander off by ourselves, to stay paired together, to never allow for the, for the women to be by themselves because there would be passes made towards them, explicit passes, um, inappropriate passes made to them. Um, but in the midst of this unforeseen circumstance of being in the middle, in the dark, uh, in the midst of gunfire, in a hostage-like situation, uh, my life fell out of my hands. So I kept grabbing for what I could hold. I considered what these men with guns would do to me. I considered what they would do to my friends, to the girls that were with us, what they would take from us. I began trying to find hope in the authorities, which we made attempts to call and they failed to come <laughs> often one either by no sense of urgency or they couldn't find the compound that we were staying in. I fear, fear surrounded me and I began to focus on the external things that were there. Where could I hide? What could I, who could I get in front of me so that I wouldn't get attacked or taken or shot? And I remember trying to think of the exits to get myself out. Again, things that I could hide myself, things that I could shield myself furthest from the harm. I was considering within myself what safety looked like and how I could devise a plan to be safe. If I was dead, I was thinking in my mind, how could I share Jesus with my teammates? How could I play another game of basketball? I get my degree, grow in my faith. All of these are valid things, right? All of these questions flooded my head. Then sitting in the midst of the dark hall, I heard a faint noise and then a still small melody began to play of a song. And the voices began to sing a little louder and it wasn't just any singing. It wasn't like we were singing some song by Kesha. Or <laughs> it, was, it was to God. In the room next to me, 
a small group of my friends were singing to God. And the, and the words are still ingrained into my mind today. Set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain, that I can't control. I want more of you, God. I want more of you, God. And there's no place I'd rather be. What? No place I would rather be than in a dark room, in a hostage situation, singing to God. No place I would rather be than here in your love. And then I prayed, God, please save us. What was missing in the moment of great circumstantial pressure wasn't actually missing at all. I just simply misunderstood the promise. I will be with you always. I misunderstood the promise. The invitation was to use the context, the circumstance, to call out to God, to cling to his words, to know his presence. You see, friends, because your circumstance doesn't explicitly have a sign in the clouds that, that's written that says God is here or that God did this or an audible voice that is communicating to you God said this or a physical miracle proving that God helped, it does not mean that God is not there. He is still there. He is always there. Misunderstanding God's promise for Abram here and for us is assuming that your fate and my fate is safer in my hands than it is in the hands of God. Who knows your beginning from your end? Who knows Abram's beginning from his end? But you might say, okay, I see where finding safety in yourself is a common misunderstanding of the promises of God, but I'm, I'm not convinced it's not the best way to go. And I know some of us are thinking that because I thought that. I was thinking that as I was wrestling with this text. I'm still not convinced it's not the best way to go. So to you and to myself, I ask, have you considered all the effects of finding safety in yourself? Well, let's look at scene number two, and see what we can kind of uncover together. So look back in our text now with me at verses 14 through 16. So Abraham's situation has begun to pick up steam. Action, <clears throat> action is now building as his comments from just before become more real than he anticipated. His plans are now in, are put in play. What Abram anticipated would happen in Egypt actually becomes a snowball rolling down the side of a very snowy mountain. What he thought was small, they will notice you are beautiful, began growing. The Egyptians, as you could see in the text, noticed she was very beautiful. And it didn't stop growing. The Egyptians in general noticed Sarai, but not only did general Egyptians notice but princes noticed. 
And these princes shared of Sarai's beauty with Pharaoh. That, as you could say, escalated quickly. (laughs) There is a problem here, though, that I'm sure Abraham could not have anticipated. It's fair to assume that he suggested Sarai to be his sister so that they could all safely survive in the land together. But the problem that he now faces is that safety in the land together is in danger. He now has this bigger issue. Abram's plan escalated to his wife being taken into Pharaoh's house. Here we see Abram's plans become problems. And we too can relate to this when our plans escalate out of control and become more of a headache than it is a help. But another perplexing thing and another perplexing angle to this scene is that as Abram's plans become a problem, we see Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. He dealt well with him. What is going on here? And here we have two competing realities. Abram has a serious problem. His wife, who he said is his sister, is now in Pharaoh's house. And then he's also given this immense amount of wealth. So the first problem, his wife is in Pharaoh's house. Abram should have been protecting his wife caring for her instead of preserving himself. But then at the same time, now he has this immense amount of wealth beyond his wildest dreams. This doesn't exactly fall under God's, I will bless you and I will bless others cause. Because Abraham didn't necessarily bless Pharaoh. (laughs) He said, I'm going to keep Sarai as my wife as we sojourn in this land. And then Pharaoh takes her, but Abram gets blessed. That's confounding. Now to us, though, what Abram is blessed with doesn't seem like much, but it's actually the modern, modern equivalent of getting like a minority share of Amazon. Like he was given a lot. And the two things that notified to us that Abram was given a lot actually come at the end of the verse. It says the female donkeys and camels. So why is that important? It's because female donkeys were more controllable and durable, and they were the choice ride of the wealthy. And camels at this point in time were very, very rare. And they were the choice of the wealthy because of their rarity. He was given luxury items. Essentially, he was given a Range Rover and a Beamer, right? (laughs) Like, he's given things now despite his sin, despite his fear, despite his self-preservation. And here we see that Abram's plans become perplexing. Like, it's perplexing how he could have this happen, giving up his wife and get this. It's completely baffling to us as hearers to see the father of the faith handing over his wife and receiving so much wealth. 
And honestly, he is living so inconsistent with the promise that he was given. And this is a consequence to misunderstanding God's promise. Abram found safety in himself. His plans snowballed into something worse than he could ever anticipate. And then he got great wealth in the midst of his plans becoming a problem. Therefore, he's creating this perplexing reality and an inconsistent life. He's got this, again, he's got his wife in, this, in another man's house. He's got all this wealth on behalf of her. There's some inconsistencies happening here in Abram's life. So what can we say misunderstanding God's promise looks like here? It looks a lot like living inconsistently. So the illustrations for inconsistent living are honestly, they're endless. We have all witnessed in the last few years, whether afar or up close, pastors, politicians, parents, siblings, friends, all live inconsistently. Integrity is the opposite of living inconsistently. Integrity simply means you are living whole. Your actions match your convictions. And we all know when we witness someone who lives in integrity, it's beautiful. It's compelling. It's attractive. It, it's right. So take for a moment how someone identifies a counterfeit bill. You would think that they would simply stare really hard at the counterfeit bill, looking at all the intricacies, finding all the little off details. And then with that knowledge, they would be able to identify the real thing, right? No, they actually don't stare at a counterfeit bill for hours and hours and hours. It's the opposite. They actually spend hours and hours staring at the details and the intricacies of the real thing. They're studying it. They're absorbing it. And they're training their eye and their heart and their mind to identify the counterfeit. So what does this have to do with Abraham? Abraham is handling a counterfeit bill of a plan. And playing with counterfeit bills can create perplexing problems. And the bill he handled had details that said, Abraham will bless. Abram will be a great nation. Abram can save himself. God's promise, though, was the real thing. The bill that Abram would have been handling and should have been handling Abram must stare, study, absorb the promise of God on his behalf, receive the grace of the words, I will bless you. Behold the intricate details of the promise of God that says, I will make you a blessing to the nations. The beauty of I will curse those who curse you and the promise of I will give you this land. It's not Abram. It's God. He needed to hold the real thing, not the counterfeit. And so here is our grace, is that the real currency of life is found in Jesus. And the remedy to our inconsistencies 
Our counterfeit currency is found in him, in looking endlessly at him. So if you are anything like me, you often trust yourself and become frustrated with your own inconsistencies. You might feel like this is just a fact of life, that this is the only way to inhabit the world. But even that thought process comes from a mindset of scarcity that I am the only one who can protect myself, that I am the only one who can make plans and set right and have my own wisdom to navigate this world rather than coming from a place of possibility or plenty. God will. God is my wisdom. Christ is my stand-in. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one can come from the Father except by me place of possibility and of plenty is in Jesus. So which is when we believe that scarcity is the place and I'm the only one who can make the decisions and live this life is a symptom of misunderstanding God's promise. So what do we hope we have? What hope do we have for us who constantly misunderstand God's promises? Let's look at the last scene. Uh, so looking at this final scene, look with me at 17 through 13 too. This is the resolution to the promises presented from verses 10, or from the problems, not promises, presented from verses 10 through 16. The narrator has given us the perplexing reality of scene two, and now we enter into an important narrative shift. The text says, but the Lord. And I don't know about you, but the word but is usually couched negatively when I hear it. Someone will say, you did this really well, but, or that song was great, but, and you know what? We are conditioned to assume the worst when the word but comes. But here we have a circumstance shifting, but, but the Lord. This shows us a need for God to intervene. God's intervention comes not after Abram cleans his act up, not when Abram remembers the promise correctly. God's intervention comes despite Abram, in the midst of Abram's self-preservation and his putting his wife in someone else's house and the inconsistencies of his own life. And the text actually says it wasn't even for Abram's sake. It was for Sarai. And the Lord's intervention came. So the Lord's intervention comes for those who can't help themselves. Both Abram, who can't get out of his own way at this point, and both for Sarai, who is in a foreign land, in someone else's house, in desperate need of salvation. So the Lord's intervention comes to both the ones who self-sabotage and the ones who might even be victimized. 
And as God intervenes, Pharaoh calls Abram. Look at verses 18 and 19. And here we get the most unlikely of confrontations. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. Egypt in the mind of Israel, a place of death, slavery, bondage. But God uses Pharaoh to sober Abram. What is this you have done to me, Pharaoh says. Why did you not tell me she was your wife? What's happening here in the life of Abram is he's needing, or he, he, uh, showing his need of a sobering rebuke from an unlikely character. A sobering rebuke from an unlikely character. Isn't it mysterious how God chooses to work? But the Lord afflicts a plague on Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh is like, what in the world is happening? Goes to Abraham, grabs him, and he rebukes him. A godless man rebukes the father of our faith. He rebukes Abraham here. God is kind to us in our selfish inconsistencies to give us rebukes. And by his grace, it is a hard course correct for Abram and for many of us. And as this scene wraps up, we can't help but marvel actually at the goodness of God when we can't seem to get out of the way of ourselves. The text reads that Pharaoh sent him, Abram, away with his wife, and not just his wife, but all that he had. So pause and consider that for a second. He sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Abram misunderstood God's promise so bad that he sought safety in himself, lived an inconsistent life, giving up his wife, collecting wealth, getting caught in a lie, and he leaves. He leaves Egypt with his wife and immeasurably more than he could have ever thought or imagined. Not only while he was in Egypt did God intervene and restore Abram and Sarah and Sarai, the text in 13.1 also reads, they went up. He went back to the land that God had already promised him, carrying a restored family without a scratch on him or his wife, that we know of, and immeasurably more than he could ask or imagine. What? You see, verse 2 of chapter 13 says that Abram was very rich. And yes, he was rich indeed. But the very riches that Abram possessed wasn't livestock silver or gold. Oh, the riches that he possessed actually was the God of the promise, was the fact that God was faithful to his promise. The God who no matter what Abram chose to do or how far in Egypt he went, he was going to take his bad, Abram's bad, and use it for good. He is the God 
who is true to his word when Abram can't string together a simple truth. So you see, Abram needed a reminder of the goodness of God. That's why these words are here. And even as Israel hears this story replayed, they need a reminder of the goodness of God, that God stays true to his promise. And as we sit here and we think about all of the things that are pressing in on the sides of our lives, the hardships, the darkness, the uncertainty, the famine, the sojourning. We too need a reminder of the goodness of God. What does that reminder look like in your life right now? Is it that you need to remember that God woke you up this morning? Is it that you need to remember that God has given you a house, a home, a family, and that is intact? Or do you need to remember that God last week saved you from yourself and in kindness brought you to repentance and a new and a fresh experience of the Lord Jesus? Or do you need to remember that 10 years ago, God healed a family member or that God stepped in and with that gift from a friend paid your bills? How do you need to be reminded today of the goodness of God and that God is faithful to his promise, that God's promise to you is that he will be with you always and that one day you are going to step into a city and that city is going to be without tears and without pain and without struggle and without strife. And you know who will be there? It won't be the fact that there's beautiful buildings and lots and lots of gold. Jesus is there. He is there. So friends, the words Abram went up to Canaan are really powerful words. They are retelling a story that we too need to hear. That God is the God of the Exodus. That God is the God that will part seas. That God is the God that even in the midst of our struggles and our and our strife, and our getting in the way of ourselves, he cares so deeply for you that even if you're in the way, it won't stop him from pulling you out. Because you know, friends, it's not just that Abram went down, it's that Jesus too came down from heaven. He came down in the muck and the mire and the misunderstandings. He came down into a famine to people hungry, thirsty, pining for anything of substance. And he said, I am the bread of life. And as he, as people sought to fill their cups up for thirst and whatever that they could find, he says that I am the well that never runs dry. And as Jesus sojourned in the land, he sought safety in the words of his father, he lived in integrity. There were no inconsistencies. And when the peoples came to kill him, instead of scapegoating his bride, the beauty of what he saw that we could be set him to joy to go to the cross. And he endured it to bear their sin. And he went down into death. He went down into Egypt, but the Lord, and Jesus didn't stay down. Jesus went up, friends. Jesus went up. He went up so that through him, we might go up 
too. That despite ourselves, Jesus saves us up into him. And as we continue in him, though life can feel like a famine and going down to sojourn in Egypt, the promise is Jesus is the place and he has a place for you. That your present, no matter how dark it is, no matter how brutal it might be, no matter how good it is, that your present is preparing you for his promise. The promise that he will one day bring you, like I said, into that city where there is no more tears, there is no more sin, there's no more pain, there's no more fear that someone will kill you. There, there in that city, in that land, you will be whole, like him, lacking nothing. And you will be very rich. Because when you go up, you go up with him, with Jesus, and you have all of him. Friends, you will be very rich and you are very rich right now, not because of all that you have, but because of who you have. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder of your faithfulness to us, that you are faithful to your promise and we can live secure in your plan. So let us do that today. And if there are those of us who do not or are not doing that, I pray that the ground in the, of, our, of our hearts and your heart and their hearts would be fertile, that they would receive this word and they would, they would return to you. They would come to you for life everlasting. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.